very much energetically modern, but it's, I think the quality of Bombay is definitely energy. It's one. combination of New York and Los Angeles put together also because in America they represent the financial capital of the U United States and the entertainment capital and we've got both those energies in one tiny little space so you can just feel how much energy that would churn. Somebody once told us um, if you know that from our teachings that Sri Yukteswarji talked about uh, us no longer being in Kali Yuga but in Dwapar Yuga and Dwapar Yuga is the age of energy. Somebody said in India, however, only Mumbai represents at this stage that Dwapara energy that's moved very more so into vibrating at that space. And in many ways, you can feel that here in the city because the energy is, is well, there's restlessness, like there's going to be restlessness everywhere, but everybody seems to have a purpose here. Everybody seems to be moving in a direction, not so much like this, but more like this. <laughs> At this least action-oriented action yeah. It's really, really nice to yeah. be here. Not to belittle any other wonderful city <laughs> in this entire beautiful, beautiful country and the entire world, of course. Every place has its own unique vibration that you can draw from some quality that is going to enhance and transform some aspect of our consciousness. For us right now, Mumbai is uh, giving us the energy that we need. Palm li palms line the spacious boulevards, no longer so spacious, magnificent state structures. Why? For interest with ancient temples. Of course, he's describing a lot more of South Bombay, where yes, the, you know, the roads are much larger and then the architecture is very, very beautiful and interesting. And you've got those old te temples there as well. And of course, those modern, now what we would consider <laughs> ancient buildings. Very little time was given to sightseeing. However, I was impatient, eager to see my beloved Guru and other dear ones. Consigning the Ford to a baggage car, our party was soon speeding eastward by train toward Calcutta. I, I read somewhere a letter that Yogananda sent to Rajasi Anakananda about his landing in Mumbai these very first days in India. And he was saying that the reason why we, they couldn't travel by car is because the, it was mm -hmm. monsoon time mm -hmm. and all the streets were, were flooded so they had to take the a train. train instead. But this was a car that Rajasi and Akananda uh, bought specifically for Yogananda and the little uh, group of disciples that traveled with him from the west to India. Also somewhere he says that there are many places we couldn't go because there were no roads mm -hmm. <laughs> yet in that's, India that's to even true. enter into some of these places. Our arrival at Howrah station found such an immense crowd assembled to greet us that for a while we were unable to dismount from the train. The young Maharaja of Kashim Bazar and my brother Vishnu headed the reception committee. I was unprepared for the warmth and magnitude of our welcome. For those of you who aren't quite aware and maybe it comes somewhere, but maybe it doesn't, that Vishnu Ghosh, in fact, himself is quite a well-known, uh, what was called a physical culturist at the time. 
he took the Energies. principles that Yogananda espoused in the energization exercises and he merged them in with Hatha Yoga and created his own form of Hatha Yoga that he taught in Calcutta. And then one of his students then ended up making that form of Hatha Yoga extremely famous in the world. And then he called it Bikram Yoga or mm -hmm. Hot Yoga, of course. And so he was a disciple of Vishnu Ghosh's. And so that was the idea behind the yoga is that pushing yourself, you're like heating up the body, really sweating in that process and that the more warm you can get, the easier and more limber the body becomes in the process. Preceded by a line of automobiles and motorcycles and amidst the joyous sound of drums and conch shells, Miss Bletch, Mr. Wright and myself, so the three of them, flower garlanded from head to toe, drove slowly to my father's home. <laughs> There's one photograph of Swamiji also back in the 1960s, he's in Patiala. And he's just got, I don't know, like 30 <laughs> garlands around him and you can barely see his face. And so I can only imagine what's happening with Yogananda Ji at the time. Just like, can't move, can't walk, just garland after garland. I mean, if hundreds of people are coming and each are putting garlands over you. Nowadays, you see in when, you know, people garland, you, they put the garland and the person takes it out, gives it to somebody else and the second person puts the garland. We, we've lost the art of the multi-garland being but you know we'll get there in time i was just as i was reading this an interesting thought came to me because the setting is such an interesting setting isn't it you've got the you've got a country still under foreign rule you've got this person coming from the west you know coming back returning home an interesting um, episode i was reminded of you know when yoganandaji was in america it turned out later on that he was on the fbi's watch list and that he would be followed everywhere he went because they thought maybe he's here in the country to gain support for the independence movement. And of course, Master was such an uh, ardent, uh, you know, not follower so much, but he really, really talked a lot about Gandhi. Wherever he went, he really appreciated the fact that Gandhi took the principles of nonviolence and he just stuck to that as the means to achieving freedom. And so wherever he went, that would happen. And so that was an interesting thing that these declassified files later on came mm -hmm. to light that said, you know, so I imagine now as well, maybe that's happening to a certain degree. You know? In those hundreds of people, there might be some, uh, you know, some spies kind of following around saying, what's the agenda here? Because at that time, anybody who was, you know, garnering too much attention and around whom crowds were being formed, the British government obviously was being mindful of them and trying to see what it is they might be perhaps uh, fermenting among the populace. Let's just take a brief moment here. I mean, just let's all visualize that parade <laughs> of people escorting Yoganandaji. And all these are not unknown people. All these are Yogananda students from Ranchi. And all these are Vishnu kind of, you know, colleagues and, and students that he called all of them. Yogananda is coming back and he organized this parade. But what this really means, I mean, at that time, there was no Instagram, Internet, WhatsApp. You just couldn't just send a message. Hey, Yogananda is here in five <laughs> minutes. Let's all get ready. Just imagine how much 
coordination that took, how much time they had to wait, you know, until everything came together and just kind of going with the flow that very day. But what meant for Yogananda Ji was that, wow, I left 15 years ago, trusting and hoping that my work could continue. And, and he couldn't come back. He didn't have any kind of reports from India often enough to know how his work was going, going uh, how his school in Ranchi was going. I mean, the kind of training that those disciples and students had, he just trusted that those that he put in charge would do a good job. And there you have it. 15 years later, and he sees all these young students just rejoicing for his welcoming under the training on, of Vishnu. And it, it's just like, what a gratifying moment, knowing that your work is still continuing and it's growing and it's expanding and, and young people are joining this path of self-realization. I mean, just, just imagine for Yogananda, just to see all that, what a satisfying feeling for, you know, to see this blossoming. My aged parent embraced me as one returning from the dead. Remember when the father was leaving him, said, I'm afraid we won't see each other. And Yogananda Ji makes him this promise at least once before we will see each other. So that promise is being fulfilled now. Long we gazed on each other, speechless with joy. Brothers and sisters, uncles, aunts and cousins, students and friends of years long past were grouped around me and not a dry eye among us. Passed now into the archives of memory, the scene of loving reunion vividly endures unforgettable in my heart. So of course he's writing this almost uh, 10, 11 years later. So every scene is still just as vivid in his mind. As for my meeting with Sri Yukteswar, words fail me. Let the following description from my secretary suffice. So Mr. Wright was traveling with Yoganandaji and he kept a travel diary and he kind of logged in and journaled every day everything that took place. Well, this is an excerpt from his travel log. Today, filled with the highest anticipations, I drove Yoganandaji from Calcutta to Serampur. Mr. Wright recorded in his travel diary. We passed by quaint shops, one of them the favorite eating haunt of Yoganandaji during his college days and finally entered a narrow walled lane. I'd love to know which was this favorite haunt of Master's <laughs> during his college days. What was he eating yeah, there? I was thinking the same. A sudden left turn and there before us towered the simple but inspiring two-story ashram. Its Spanish style balcony jutting from the upper floor. The pervasive impression was that of peaceful solitude. You've got the Spain connection here. Yeah, yes. In grave humility, I walked behind Yoganandaji into the courtyard where the, within the hermitage walls, hearts beating fast. We proceeded up some old cement steps, trod, no doubt, by myriad of truth seekers. 
It's wonderful to think that way, isn't it? That any place, especially when you go to a temple or you go any place that's sacred, it's just helpful to visualize who all must have walked before me. Every place that our foot kind of touches the ground has been touched by thousands of people seeking that truth, perhaps many who even found that truth. And what that connection might be, even though it feels momentarily and might even feel inconsequential, but some exchange must be happening because we're all just living each other's lives. You know, if we're like on some sort of an escalator, we're all going to be where somebody else was and we all are where somebody else will be. And somewhere or the other, this intersection is just going to keep happening and each of us are contributing to each other's spiritual journeys without having the foggiest clue about what might be happening in the process, where each other's footsteps are connecting and perhaps perfectly aligning even in certain cases. Every time we go on a pilgrimage, that's one of the most powerful thoughts for me. Who must have walked here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, where is my foot? <laughs> where could I see a footprint that I could go and kind of place my own foot upon? The tension grew keener and keener as we strode. Before us, near the head of the stairs, quietly appeared the Great One, Swami Sri Yukteswarji, standing in the noble pose of a sage. Of course, at this time, Sri Yukteswarji is already in his 80s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just that age has, of course, affected him. But for Mr. Wright to see him for the first time, wow, what a sight it would have yeah. been for him. Because for 15 years, he's been hearing Yogananda Ji just go on and on. My master, my guru, my... Everybody in America was being, who is this guy? Who is this guru? Who is this master? Who has trained you? Who has explained to you all these amazing things? And only two people from all actually get to see him from America with master, just these two disciples who traveled. And imagine the atmosphere. I mean, not only you are already in awe in the presence of Yogananda, but you are right now in the presence of two self-realized masters that carry that divine consciousness. And you are in the midst of it, trying to, again, don't, don't lose your center because you know that you are in the presence of God himself in the form of these two masters and you are feeling all that. I mean, the guru-disciple now reunion and, and the feelings and the exchange of energy that's about to happen, knowing also that what this means for Yogananda. And then you are there witnessing, but at the same time receiving, but you don't want to interfere in that exchange and you want to give. I mean, what a mixed feeling uh, Mr. Yeah. Wright uh, had, I mean, and, and the blessing of being part of, of that uplifted state of consciousness just in that little tiny hermitage in Serampur. My heart heaved and swelled as I felt myself blessed by the privilege of being in his sublime presence. Tears blurred my eager sight when Yoga Nandaji dropped to his knees. They've never seen their guru drop to his knees before. <laughs> Others have dropped before him, but this is an unusual sight. And with bowed head offered his soul's gratitude and greeting, touching with his hand his guru's feet. And then, in humble obeisance, 
his own head. He rose then and was embraced on both sides of the bosom by Sri Yukteswarji. I'm reminded of that first meeting between Sri Yukteswar and Master. Master was a teenager then, you know, and he dropped to his knees and Sri Yukteswarji said to him, My own you have come to me. And again, after all this time, you know, after all that time, that relationship is still exactly the same. Master is still that teenager, Sri Yukteswarji is still that towering figure who asked of him his unconditional love and his unconditional obedience in order for that relationship to continue. Because many lifetimes may come and go and even though our Guru remains an eternal presence, but it doesn't mean that we get to experience that relationship each life, unless of course each life we make a conscious decision to reawaken what that relationship has always meant. And again, no matter how high or low or great the disciple becomes before the Guru, he's just a foundling, just a fledgling, just born again. And I mean, right now, Yogananda left Sri Yudeshwar 15 years ago as this humble disciple with a mission, with a role to play. But now Yogananda approaches to Sri Yudeshwar, yes, as st still as the disciple, but now recognizing the titanic effort of what it means to be responsible for other disciples and students. Now Yogananda comes to Sri Yudeshwar with an experience of 15 years trying to train disciples. So Yogananda not only must be in awe and overwhelmed by being with his guru back, but now recognizing how much effort, sacrifice, tapasya, purification, energy, time takes to build even one disciple. And Yogananda had to experience that in his own skin, in his own consciousness. And that's what Sri Yudeshwar did with him and with other disciples. But now Yogananda recognizes that. Sometimes when I think about mothers and, and they try to explain me what, what it takes to raise, raise a child and to raise a child, raise, yeah. to raise a child and, and, and all the energy that goes there. I understand them, but I can only imagine what that means. We never know what it takes until we go through it. And then we really like, wow, you know, you can really feel that. And Yogananda here it has experienced what it means to have that responsibility on his shoulders. No words passed at the beginning, but the most intense feeling was expressed in the mute phrases of the soul, how their eyes sparkled and were fired with the warmth of renewed soul union. A tender vibration surged through the quiet patio 
and even the sun eluded the clouds to add a sudden blaze of glory. On bended knee before the master, I gave my own unexpressed love and thanks, touching his feet, calloused by time and service, and receiving his blessing. I stood then and faced two beautiful deep eyes, smouldering with introspection, yet radiant with joy. So very, he's got quite the art, doesn't yes. he, to have to explain this. Um, obviously, it's hard to put in such things into words. And if we were to be like, it was amazing, you know, that was the only thing we'd be able to put. But he's really kind of, he's remembering and he must have gone back in the evening later on. I'm sure he wasn't writing and looking at the same time. But, you know, to really penetrate those eyes and to see both that inner wisdom of the introspection, because Sri Yukteswar's life force was always interiorized to a certain degree, yet at the same time to be able to radiate outwardly joy to whoever else was with you. It's quite the beautiful balance. We entered his sitting room, whose whole side opened to the outer balcony, first seen from the street. The master braced himself against a worn davenport, sitting on a covered mattress on the cement floor. Yoganandaji and I sat near the Guru's feet, with orange-coloured pillows to lean against and ease our positions on the straw mat. I tried and tried to penetrate the Bengali conversation between the two Swamiji's. <laughs> For English, I discovered, is null and void when they are together. Although Swamiji Maharaj, as the great guru is called by others, can and often does speak it. So Sri Yukteswarji was quite fairly comfortable with English. We remember from our earlier chapter that Yoganandaji was not comfortable with English at all. And when he had to give that first lecture of his on the boat to America, he stood for 10 minutes in absolute silence, unable to put words together until eventually it was Sri Yukteswarji he felt his consciousness start to flow through him and then he said words flowed effortlessly but now of course when they're together <laughs> there's no english happening at all it's just bengali which is of course their mm -hmm. natural language but i perceived the saintliness of the great one through his heartwarming smile and twinkling eyes one quality easily discernible in his merry serious conversation is a decided positiveness in statement, the mark of a wise man who knows he knows because he knows God. So beautiful. Very beautifully put. Let's just read that one more, more yes. again. The mark of a wise man who knows he knows because he knows God. His great wisdom, strength of purpose, and determination are apparent in every way. Studying him reverently, this is a beautiful, um, you can say, you know, description of Sri Yukteswarji from a, almost, you can say, a foreign perspective. So somebody mm -hmm. who's, who True. doesn't even understand fully what's going on. The only version of an, of an Indian saint that they have seen is Yoganandaji. And Yoganandaji, of course, had to really, to a great degree, transform himself to be more acceptable in the American society, in a Western society. He was putting on, he had to wear Western clothes all the time. His mannerisms changed, his way of expressions changed. He had to adopt all their idioms and all their examples and all their understandings. And 
you know, he could not be giving the bullock cart examples. He had to give the tram, tram car examples in America. So, so on and so forth. And so now this man has come here, his first experience in India, and then his first experience of a saint other than his own guru. And for him really to be able to see it from that outsider's perspective helps us because perhaps that's how we would see him too. Studying him reverentially from time to time, I noted he is of large athletic stature, hardened by the trials and sacrifices of renunciation. His poise is majestic. A decidedly sloping forehead, as if seeking the heavens, dominates his divine countenance. He has a rather large and homely nose. <laughs> <laughs> with which he amuses himself in idle moments, flipping and wiggling with his fingers like a child. Yesterday I was trying to think what that was. Yes, what, what, what would he be doing yes, with his nose? Was he like thinking? Would he... So I'm going to start touching my nose a lot more. I was thinking that each saint, I mean, you can see here how they take themselves so, you know, also jokingly, you know, there are certain aspects of their physical appearance that it just amuses them. I, I mean, for Swami Kriyananda, it was he, his ears. Yeah. I mean, he would always joke about his ears. I remember once we went to a restaurant and we were sitting next to a couple and the man had pretty big ears as well. And Swami just like, so jokingly, he just say, Oh, I have never met anyone who had the same size of ears as I have. <laughs> and the man can just look at him couldn't and figure just couldn't what? figure out. But he started laughing because he saw that sense of humor. And Swamiji was the first one that would joke about himself. He would find something about his body that was a little bit unusual. Or someone could, you know, could see themselves and criticize themselves for that specific part of the of their body that is so out of proportion. But he would just take it as something very funny, something he could easily and freely joke about and make other people laugh as well. So I was reminded about, you know, like. We all have that part of our body <laughs> that we should just, you know not take it so seriously and amuse ourselves and play with it like a child. His powerful dark eyes are hallowed by an ethereal blue ring. His hair parted in the middle begins as silver and changes to streaks of silvery gold and silvery black, ending in ringlets at his shoulders. Yesterday, as I was reading this, I just, you know, I had to just take a moment there and I really wanted to visualize everything he was saying. And of course, we have, a, you know, an, a the image of Sri Yukteswarji. And now that I see it, yeah, yeah, he has a fairly large nose like mine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but you can just, that one or two images that we have, there's just so much power when somebody's kind of putting their own visual consciousness into describing and feeling and drawing out from Sri Yukteswar, these very kind of subtle, subtle, refined aspects. His beard and moustache was scant or thinned out, which of course means that it wasn't that time, <clears throat> yet seemed to enhance his features 
like his character and like his character are deep and light at the same time. He has a jovial and rollicking laugh which comes from deep in his chest, causing him to shake and quiver throughout his body, very cheerful and sincere. His face and stature are striking in their power, as are his muscular fingers. He moves with a dignified tread and erect posture. He was clad simply in the common dhoti and shirt, both once dyed a strong ochre color, but now a faded orange. Glancing about, I observed that his rather dilapidated room suggested the owner's non-attachment to material comforts. The weather-stained white walls of the long chamber were streaked with fading blue plaster. At one end of the room hung a picture of Lahiri Mahashaya, garlanded in simple devotion. There was also an old picture showing Yoganandaji as he had first arrived in Boston, standing with the other delegates to the Congress of Religions. Mm. How sweet. Yes. Sri Ji must have found that in, I don't know, in a newspaper article somewhere, or perhaps somebody sent him something. And for him to have, you know, in a completely empty room, the only two images that are there is, of course, of his guru, but then of his disciple as well. I noted a quaint concurrence of modernity and antiquation. A huge cut glass candlelight chandelier was covered with cobwebs through disuse <laughs> and on the wall was a bright up-to-date calendar. The whole room emanated a fragrance of peace and calmness. Beyond the balcony I could see coconut trees towering over the hermitage in silent protection. It is interesting to observe that the master has merely to clap his hands together and before finishing, he is served or attended by some small disciple. Now, this was very interesting to observe yes. for a disciple of Yoganandaji's because Yoganandaji couldn't clap and <laughs> Chailao and everyone of his in America. It's a very different, different <laughs> yeah. experience there, isn't it? You know, over there, Master said, in India, the disciples are, you know, responsible to take care of the Guru. <laughs> but he says, in America, the I have to not only take care of myself, I have to take care of all the disciples. Because he had to figure out where all the money was going to come for. He had to make sure that those who joined the hermitage and the ashram were paid. Because you can't just, <laughs> over there, the concept of, no, I'm not going to have anything at all, wasn't yet quite the way that it exists here. So everybody had to be taken care of, everybody had to have a job within the ashram, he had to figure out what their job's going to be, what their job will entail, whether there's money to pay them or not, what that salary would be. I mean, imagine all of this and him having to generate, at least in the beginning, mm -hmm. almost all of that income. So yes, very different for Mr. Wright to suddenly see, oh wow, this is how it works, okay. Hopefully he went back and shared it with the disciples and said, yeah, we can also do this. <laughs> Incidentally, I am much attracted to one of them, a disciple he's talking about, a thin lad named Prafulla. With long black hair to his shoulders, a most penetrating pair of sparkling black eyes and a heavenly smile. His eyes twinkle as the corners of his mouth rise like the stars and the crescent moon appearing at twilight. 
Again, just so beautifully, I love mm-hmm. how he's described them all. Swami Sri Yukteswarji's joy is obviously intense at the return of his product. You know, it's an, <laughs> his product. After all this year, he's been working on this product and this product looks good. And in parenthesis, and he seems to be somewhat inquisitive about his product's product. product. <laughs> so Mr. Wright as well is like, all right, this is my disciple and this is your disciple. We must be thinking, we're like, how good is this guy? I mean, I gave you a lot. How much did you give him? However, predominance of the wisdom aspect of the great one's nature hinders his outward expression of feeling. So Sri Yukteswarji, of course, I mean, he could sense little subtleties of inquisitiveness perhaps, but Sri Yukteswarji never crossed the line of actually perhaps expressing or even perhaps asking. Maybe he didn't need it at all, but that was just his nature. You know, it was much more detached. Swamiji tells of this little, so somewhat comical exchange he had with Yoganandaji because he said, you know, I was looking at the image of Sri Yukteswarji and looking into his eyes and I just felt so much love coming from his eyes. This is Swamiji telling Yoganandaji and Yoganandaji says dryly, there was no love in those eyes <laughs> because he, he's like, that's not the Sri Yukteswarji I experienced. Of course, you behind it all, you can see it, but Sri Yukteswarji, wasn't, that wasn't the first kind of expression you'd receive from him. Yoganandaji presented him with some gifts as the custom as is the custom when the disciple returns to his guru we sat down later to a simple but well cooked meal all the dishes were vegetable and rice combinations and so that was interesting for him too <laughs> Sri Yukteswarji was pleased at my use of a number of indian customs finger eating for example could he <laughs> he passed that test at least After several hours of flying Bengali phrases and the exchange of warm smiles and joyful glances, we paid obeisance at his feet and bade adieu with a pronoun and departed for Calcutta with an everlasting memory of a sacred meeting and greeting. Although I write chiefly of my external impressions of him, yet I was always conscious of the true basis of the saint, his spiritual glory. I felt his power and shall carry that feeling as my divine blessing. And thus ends the little entry from his travel journal. And then Yoganandaji himself continues, from America, Europe and Palestine, I had brought many presents for Sri Yukteswar. He received them smilingly, but without remark. For my own use, I had brought in, bought in Germany a combination umbrella cane. In India, I decided to give the cane to Master. This gift I appreciate indeed. My Guru's eyes were turned on me with affectionate understanding as he made the unwanted comment. From all the presents, it was the cane that he singled out to display to visitors. Master, please permit me to get you a new carpet for the sitting room. I had noticed Sri Yukteswarji's tiger skin was placed over a worn rug, a torn rug. Do so if it pleases you. My guru's voice was not enthusiastic. (laughs) Behold, my tiger mat is nice and clean. I am monarch 
in my own little kingdom. Beyond it is the vast world interested only in externals. So again, the guru returns and the little disciple is chastised. Take care, you know, if you think, if you think it's going to help you to get me a rug, sure, you can do it. But I most don't certainly need don't yeah. need it. I am monarch of my own little kingdom. As he uttered these words, I felt the years roll back. Once again, I am a young disciple, purified in the daily fires of chastisement. As soon as I could tear myself away from Serampur and Calcutta, I set out with Mr. Wright for Ranchi. What a welcome there, a veritable ovation. Tears stood in my eyes as I embraced the selfless teachers who had kept the banner of the school flying during my 15-year absence. The bright faces and happy smiles of the residential and day students were ample testimony to the worth of their many-sided school and yoga training. Yet, alas, the Ranchi institution was in dire diffic financial difficulties. Sir Mahindra Chandranandi, the old Maharaja, whose Kasimbazar palace had been converted into the central school building, and who had made many princely donations, was now dead. Many free, benevolent features of the school were now seriously endangered for lack of sufficient public support. I had not spent years in America without learning some of its practical wisdom and its undaunted spirit before obstacles. For one week I remained in Ranchi, wrestling with critical problems. Then came interviews in Calcutta with prominent leaders and educators, a long talk with the young Maharaja of Qasim Bazar, a financial appeal to my father, and lo, the shaky foundations of Ranchi began to be righted. Many donations, including one huge check, arrived in the nick of time from my American students. So even coming to India, he had to, you know, jump back into that mode of, oh my goodness, this needs fixing and that needs fixing and this needs to be, you know, bolstered up. And of course, that's unfortunately in most spiritual works, that's one of the things that take a lot of energy all the time to keep ensuring, you know, an ample support for the continuation of everything that we've created because you can create something and, you know, there can be a lot of enthusiasm in the creation, a new project. Everybody's enthusiastic. Chalo, ya, ye karenge, wo karenge. But then to be able to maintain and keep growing and expanding, that enthusiasm fades after a while. All the people who were the greatest supporters in the beginning after a while, new projects interest them and other places are more exciting for them. And then to just to be able to keep a place going, growing, expanding, energized, dynamic, boy, that just takes everything from, you know, anybody who has to run such a place. And for Yogananda Ji to come back and jump back into that role, I'm sure it wasn't ideal, but, you know, that's what he had to do. And the kind of commitment, you know, he committed to this 15 years ago, he started, he <laughs> believed in it. And no matter what, when he came back, he never dropped from himself that sense of responsibility. And if no one was going to do it, he would do it. And, and I think that's the kind of responsibility that many times the Guru asks of us. You know, like if you are starting something, 
Take it all the way through until you make it a success. Mm -hmm. Just don't drop it in the middle of it. You know, if you believe in it, just just make it successful. Apply the principles. Make it practical. Be, be practical in your idealism, and, and and you can see that ranchy, that school where little kids could be trained under this yoga system was very dear to his heart. He knew that education was the future of India. And that was one of the greatest spiritual investments that he and his organization and, and many of us could do and can do even until this day for India is to invest spiritually and to raise children with the right consciousness and then those children can become leaders and can become emissaries of these spiritual principles and 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 i'm so glad that that he comes back and this is one of his main projects to make sure that that is school that is representing the principles of high thinking and simple living and, and, and yoga and meditation and, and nature and, and supporting one another uh, becomes alive and grows and expands. And it's just so, so powerful to see our guru not only building the work in the West, but then coming back and picking up the pieces that have been left behind by others that perhaps didn't have enough magnetism to put it together. And still he comes back and say, I'll, I, I'll do this. And he does it just in one week in Ranchi, he manages to magnetize the money and that's it. The Ranchi school is established. Within a few months after my arrival in India, I had the joy of seeing the Ranchi school legally incorporated. That's another interesting thing. I was like, wow, in all this time for 15 years, nobody had even done that. Again, you could see Yoganandaji have brought all these kind of practical, more outward, more establishment consciousness to be able to ensure that whatever was in fact brought to you know, was brought to manifestation, was able to then be held in that state. So legally incorporated after 15 years, again, because he was there to do it. My lifelong dream of a permanently endowed yoga educational center stood fulfilled. That vision had guided me in the humble beginnings in 1917 with a group of seven boys. That's the first school Yoganandaji started with seven students. It was called Dika. And uh, from there it grew. And, and when it grew large enough, that's when he approached the Maharaja of Kasim Bazar to see if he would be the patron of the school. And then the Maharaja gave his property in uh, Ranchi to Yogananda for that purpose. In the decades since 1935, Ranchi has enlarged its scope far beyond the boys' school. Widespread humanitarian activities are now carried are now carried on there in the Sham Charan Lahiri Mahashaya mission. So of course our class comes to an end today and we just have two more pages in this mm -hmm. chapter which I would just encourage you to read on your own because it's a description, it's a beautiful description of everything that has happened in the school, is happening, what the children are learning, how they're learning it 
And so the next time when we come together, we'll start from chapter 41, which is an idol in South India. So we will travel then from the, west, the east side of India to the south 